Welcome to another episode of Connect and Move Radio. I'm your host, Andy Fortuna, and today we'll be going into uh, what it takes to become a tennis coach and what a tennis coach is, and then the prerequisites of a tennis athlete. Today's guest is Jeremy Stanford, tennis professional based out of Miami, Florida, specializing in in training competitive level uh, juniors as well as players of all ages, levels, and sizes. Loves watching sports in addition to playing and coaching. Jeremy, welcome to the show, bud. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So tell us, how did you get to being a tennis uh, tennis pro? Uh, basically, I started playing tennis at the uh, young age of four uh, and started competing when I was about 14 after many years of playing basketball. I turned to tennis after being cut from my eighth grade basketball team. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't an all-star that I thought I was. <laughs> and so I said, I'll go into the tennis world where I don't have to worry about my coach's playing time and I just go play tournaments mm-hmm. and hit the ground running from there uh, got to the top 50 in USDA Florida as an 18 year old played number one at my high school uh, from there I kind of gave up the tennis dream because I figured I wasn't going to be the next Andre Agassi uh, so I went to University of Florida didn't really pick up a racket their team was uh, too good for me and after uh, a finance degree and three years in the hedge fund accounting world, I decided that wasn't for me. And I was always uh, in touch with my uh, coach that, I, that was coached me from about 15 to 17 or 18. And he, he always told me I had a job with him. And I decided to take him up on it after a couple of months of life break at the age of about 25. And from there, uh, it's been about almost... I'm 34 now, so about 10 years of uh, tennis coaching. Hedge fund. So what exactly is that? Sounds important. Uh, It's basically a a glorified mutual fund manager. So I was uh, helping uh, investment managers with their monthly financial statements. Uh, Nothing too fun. And after three years of running the numbers and doing the books and making sure that people got their profit and loss statements. Uh, I said, I did not want to do this with my life anymore. And that's how I uh, got out on the tennis courts again and had some more fun in the sun while making some money as well. So you are considered a tennis pro, correct? Uh, correct. Yeah, I'm certified by the uh, USPTA as an elite level instructor. And that's between the USPTA, that's more of your uh, United States uh, certification, or there's another one called uh, USPTR, and that's an international one. But basically, those are the two most uh, recognizable sources of certification as a tennis professional or a tennis coach. So that, that's what I mean, tennis professional, coach, instructor? Yeah, any of those work. What are the, like, what do you have to do to be able to, like, pass that? Or is there, uh, like, an exam? Yeah, so there, there is... Um, usually go uh, uh, over the course of a weekend, uh, you take a, a written exam, and then you also do two different um, on-court exams where one would be a private lesson for about 30 minutes, and then you give a group class for 30 minutes. So in order to get the elite level one, you need to pass the test with 90% or better. It's a 100-question test. And then um, 
basically you just go through, uh, or excuse me, you have somebody evaluating you when you do the lessons and they just pick out a, it's, it's at a club in, in Boca, the one I did it at. And you have a random lady or guy that you give a, a private to and you have someone evaluating you and the same thing with the group. And from there, uh, if they like what they see and what they hear and whatnot, you'll, you'll get your, you know, grade and Luckily, I made the cut, and I I, it, I was already teaching for a couple of years. I actually go back to a, when I was fifteen. I gave lessons to some younger guys. So mm, okay. even though I've been doing it about nine, ten years full time, I still have, I was giving lessons as a fifteen, sixteen, seventeen year old in high school, making some extra money. You're already a veteran by the time by the time you're like, you know, what, I'm gonna go into this tennis thing. As everybody in my family knows, I'm I'm always coaching. So definitely. <laughs> Uh, especially growing up with my younger brother too, playing basketball, I was uh, had I, you know I was coaching him on the basketball court. My sister, my mom, helping them with their tennis game as well. Okay, so you teach uh, from your bio. You teach basically anybody of all levels. Do you have like uh, a demographic that you work with mostly, or as far as like you tend to work with mostly? But... Yeah, I would say fifty percent of my time, at least, maybe even more, is spent with uh, kids, probably ages about eight to 17 or 18 um, most of them are competitive tennis players meaning they go out on the weekends they play USTA and they try to get a state ranking or national ranking um, when I first started coaching uh, with my buddy Andres Barbosa uh, here in Miami um, over the two or three years that we worked together I think we had something like 10 scholarship athletes so uh, at the beginning, it was almost all my students were high school level, uh, and they weren't necessarily mine completely, but I definitely had a hand in helping them. And then uh, as the years have gone on, now I'd say most of my guys are middle school or high school level um, tournament players. What does it take to be uh, a good tennis coach? Or I guess, uh, other than passing the certification, right? Um, being like this sought out uh, tennis coach, uh, I mean, you have a successful um, business and academy instructing business um, for the last 10 years. So obviously, you know what you're doing. What does it take uh, to be a coach at that level and, uh, to, and to work with these type of athletes? Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, you got to be around a group of kids that are having successful results in tournaments uh from there once you have one or two kids uh you know the other kids start to follow so you could say or you know be an amazing player or or teach a one or two good kids but unless you have a, a you know a following it's kind of just like being a good trainer once you have a, a good word of mouth uh you know potentials kind of limitless from there so uh, right now I teach out of uh, my parents have a private court in Pinecrest and I've been using that for, for years. And I'm also at Royal Palm Tennis Club, which is in South Miami, um, beautiful 21 court facility. And we have um, a lot of really good coaches out there uh, led by uh, Eric Heckman, who's, you know, right now he's about to go on tour and coach Venus Williams um, and the guy he used to be a really good player himself. So we have about anywhere from, 20 to about 40 kids every single day uh, training and, and working towards being whatever, you know, college player or who knows, even we have a, a couple guys that are looking to go on the pro tour. So um, it, it's all about managing goals, expectations, kind of working with 
every individual student, just like you would as a trainer. You kind of, the first thing I like to do is just ask what are your goals, and those are always changing. So can always make a, a short-term goal list, whether it be one month, three months, or six months, and then there can be a long-term goal. So if I have an 11-year-old boy or girl and mom and dad say, hey, we want them to be a uh, college scholarship athlete, then we, we know where the long-term goal is. Maybe after a couple of years, we say, hey, that's not the goal anymore, or every three months, we're, we're changing. So a lot of the kids I work with, I make them a tournament schedule, we look back at it after that three months, we take a look at their results, say, hey, is this working? Is this trending up? Is this trending down? Are we somewhere in the middle? And then from there, we can reevaluate. But without, you know, putting in the work, you're just kind of going in circles or just fooling yourself because you got to kind of stick to a plan. So I think that being organized uh, is, is definitely the biggest uh, prerequisite for being a good coach whatever sport you are in. Absolutely. I mean, it helps you now to program effectively, right? You understand that the, what the student needs are and their expectations and you meet them halfway and then make this program uh, that essentially creates uh, or really brings these goals to life. And then obviously you're saying you you uh, revisit them every, okay, every month or every three months to see where they're at um, and either pivot or keep going. So I mean, like you said, really, really close to even how therapy works, right? We would program for a certain amount of weeks, you, you know, where you're at, um, pivot or, or change or, or progress if we need to uh, and go from there. If somebody's looking for a coach, what are the qualities they should be looking for? A good coach like yourself. <laughs> so uh, really, I, I think personal connection, no matter what uh, sport you're in, is a big one. Um that would be first and foremost. So kind of just energy level um, and compatibility. Uh, so that's number one. Um, I, I can't, you know, you can't really put it down to one thing. I think just like with uh, when going to a trainer, when going to a new gym, when going through a new class, you can kind of take a class. And if you like the energy, you're probably going to go back. Mm -hmm. So uh, same thing. You know, I'm at a club with 21 courts. There's a lot of other good coaches out there. Most of the time when I start with a kid, it's either the kid or the parent that, that likes my energy or how I'm running my practices. So from there, uh, you get to see kind of what you're getting first. And then from there, you say, hey, can we work? Can we do one hour a week? Or hey, let's can we do two hours a week? Whatever it is. And then from there, hit the ground running, you know, so... If it's working out, great. If it's not working out, there's always other trainers, other coaches that you can go to. Um, so really trial by error. Mm -hmm. um, and that's most of my clients. So I definitely don't have a, a high turnover rate. Mm -hmm. And most of my kids, I've, I've inspired to play more and more tournaments, be more and more competitive, if that's their goal. That's the And the parents are... A part of it i think in the the tennis world especially with coaching the competitive juniors it really takes a, a village uh because the tournaments even if you're there's plenty of tournaments luckily we're in south florida so you can go anywhere west in pembroke pines west palm boca miami but you need mom and dad to be willing to drive you there on the weekend 
Saturday if you do well, Sunday if you do really well, play the finals on Monday. Um, that's a lot of time for mm -hmm. mom and dad to be driving you back and forth from their house, you know, making sure that you wake up, eating your breakfast, staying hydrated, keeping a positive mindset, all those things. On top of which, managing the expectations. Maybe we're not making it to Sunday or Monday yet. A couple bad tournaments, being able to roll with the punches and be okay with losing because even the best tennis players in the world are only winners 56% of the time, 58% of the time. So there's going to be a lot of losses along the way. And you got to have thick skin. Man, I thought baseball was hard. Well, I mean, it is, but 50%. That's uh, So you, it's 50-50 that you're going to basically make it to the end. So if a tournament has 16 players in the draw, you got one winner. If it has 32 players in the draw, you have one winner. Mm -hmm. If you have 64 kids, the big super national tournaments that are going on right now, 256 draw, okay, do the math there's one winner yeah. so yeah there's consolation winners there's second place or third place but uh it's it's very competitive it's definitely hard and um again managing expectations of the tennis player and parent is definitely one of the toughest things that you deal with but as long as again you make a plan all the you're honest all the guidelines everything you go through again it's up to the the player the kid to have the results and be okay with winning or losing, you know? I think it's something super important that you mentioned was uh, personal connection and energy. Um, I know me, when I was uh, playing baseball, all the way through, you had you have to have, especially if you're going to be spending the amount of time with this person, um, training, right? And sometimes you're going to be freaking annoyed, both coach to player and player to coach. Um Obviously, there's a respect, but if you have that personal connection, that relatability, that energy level, because uh, I'm also I'm a big uh, advocate of not every teacher is for every student, right? Or the same thing for every coach to every player. Definitely. I think there are definitely compatibility. I think there is that energy, that little spark, that 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 chemistry uh, that really builds um, adherence. You know, that really builds uh, that opportunity for growth, right? Um, so I think that is super important, personal connection, energy level. All, all good relationships have good communication. So one of the first things I tell parents of the students I work with is I might be a fun guy and, and all those things, but I'm not going to be your kid's best friend every day. Some days we will be, and some days they might want to punch me in the face. <laughs> uh, and, story, it's, huh? and it's, yeah, it happens. And there's days that, I butt heads with some of the guys and the girls that I coach, but I'm doing it from a place of, I want the best for them, uh, whether it be on the court, off the court. And if they're acting up, I'm going to tell them. And if they're doing a good job, I'm going to tell them, but I'm not going to just be a cheerleader every day or mm -hmm. every second of every day. And that, that's not me. You know, if you want that cheerleader coach, There's I, definitely I definitely out there. can get you someone, but, <laughs> but, uh, at this point in my career, luckily, I, I can work with those guys that want to get better. So I'm straight up with all my guys and girls, whether they're nine years old or 19. So I'm more, sure, more I'm, fun that way. Yeah, I'm sure they appreciate that. I'm sure the parents, uh, maybe not all of them, uh, appreciate that because you, you're teaching them a sense of responsibility, right? And accountability at that point, which if there's anything I learned in sports and I continue to tell people that sports teaches, right, is... Uh, life right 
teaches you about life, teaches you about responsibility, teaches you about discipline, teaches you how to handle failure, right? And come back and still produce, right? Um, you mentioned 58, 56%. That's like... Best players in the world. Jesus. Yeah, best players <laughs> you know? in the world. So There's still uh, guys making millions of dollars that are 40% winners right. themselves. So. I mean, if we look at baseball, if you, if you do great three out of the 10 times, you're a Hall of Famer. Right. That's... That's pretty darn good, right? But you also have to handle. It's not what you do; it's how you come back from the strikeouts, or for example, the the bad tournaments, right? Or, or an injury in that sense, God forbid. Um, but having that that personal connection, having that village, like you mentioned, I had a a, a recent episode with uh, Michelle Cordero, and she she's basically an athletic trainer. She works. Uh, her, one of her biggest things is uh, working with parents and getting them to understand uh, that sports lifestyle and what do they need, uh, what, do, what do the players need, whether, hey, if there's this injury, this is the stuff you should be doing. Uh, and one of the things she mentioned is how parents are the front line uh, to those athletes. Obviously, we're talking about youth, but even uh, beyond that. Um, because like you said, they're the ones investing time, money, uh emotion right because they're just as part of the the wins and losses as they are as the athletes um so it does take that that uh dedication from parents so thank you parents by the way um what does it take to become a good tennis athlete (laughs) many many hours of on the court uh first you need to learn how to have good technique how to hit a ball properly forehand backhand volleys overhead serve so on then you got your specialty shots so you got to build your toolbox as many tennis coaches will say meaning you need to have all the facets of the game down to be a really good player Uh, from there once you have your toolbox you got to learn how to play against other people so when you're with a coach coach is making you better or trying to get you to play as good as possible at all times. When you go to the tournament, your opponent's kind of trying to do the opposite. Uh, a lot of times I'll hear from parents, oh, but little Johnny was doing so good in lesson with you, and can you believe how good he was playing? And, and then he went to the tournament, and he was it was like nothing we ever seen. Maybe his energy level was low, or he wasn't doing well. And part of that is, Number one, pressure can't be simulated in practice. When you're working with a adult that's trying to help you and you, let's say, fail or do something bad, it's to be expected and, and no big deal and it's all good, next next ball being fed to you. When you're at the tournament, it's you know, those points are adding up towards you losing your match. And you know, you're let excuse me, you're letting yourself down, maybe you're letting your mom or dad down. And then the whole trickle-down effect of the waterfall crashing. I can't believe we played that. So we go from, again, technique. Then we learn how to play. you got to develop your own game style. There are many different game styles. Just like in training, not everybody is built the same. Some people are going to respond really well to some commands or some exercises, whereas other people don't either learn as quickly or pick up on things as well as others do. So patience is huge with both the coach and the student. And um, 
again, a lot of trial and error. And once you, so once you got your toolbox down and once you kind of have your strategy down, then you need to go play a lot of matches. So you get that experience of using your brain and being mentally tough. So being mentally tough is definitely one of the, the biggest because in tennis, you only have yourself. Mm -hmm. So I'm a huge basketball guy, but you, you know, if you have D Wade or, or LeBron on your team and there's two minutes left, you're giving those guys the ball in tennis, you're feeling a little bit nervous. You're feeling a little bit tight. It's only you mm -hmm. and it's not a time game. So you can't just sit on the ball. You got to go ahead and win that last game or win that last match point. And just Wimbledon two weeks ago, Roger Federer on grass in Wimbledon as up 40, 15 as to you would bet against, I mean, you'd bet on him every single time. And he ended up losing the match again, Novak Djokovic, awesome champion as well. But even the best sometimes crumble when the, when the sure. stakes are high. So may, some people say he choked, some people say he didn't. But again, that's why they play the game. So you got to go out there and just know that as much as you want to win, your opponent wants to win too. So so what are special specialty shots for the amateur like myself that has no idea? What that is? <laughs> yeah, like a, a drop shot, uh -huh. a short angle, a lob, a swing volley. Uh, these are all things that maybe tennis people definitely know exactly what that is. But if you haven't watched tennis, those are things that maybe you wouldn't get on your first hour of lessons with a coach. Uh, they wouldn't maybe be going into those things because you're just working on your forehand or your backhand. Right. Um, but those can all be used effectively. And kind of like uh, in baseball, you've got your pitcher that has the curve, the fastball, the changeup. Right. And maybe you, or even football too, the coaches, they have their 20 plays or sometimes even 75 plays that they're going to go out before the game. A lot of tennis players will have kind of where they want to put each serve for the first, let's say five or 10 games. Who knows? Um, it could be the whole match. Or if my student's really strong with the forehand, we're going to devise a game plan for him or her to get as many forehands as they can in the court instead of their opponent picking on their backhand side. And that's depending, making sure that the ball lands a certain part of the court so you have that backhand? Correct. And again, sometimes much easier said than done. <laughs> so it's always easier from the coach's booth. Right. Um, but it can be it can be done. And the nice thing about going to tournaments, sometimes like I get out there with my kids and if they split sets, so if one person wins one set and the other one wins the other one, the coaches or parent, whoever's there can they can coach them, give them a little bit of advice uh, for two minutes. So it's always helpful when you have your coach watching you. Um, but at the same time, I don't have the liberty to be at every single tournament with every single one of the kids I coach. So hopefully a lot of the times, maybe I'll, you know, send them a text. Hey, remember the things you were talking about at practice, keep your first serve in, get your returns up the middle, little, little things, because you don't want to confuse even the highest level of kids that I've coached sometimes during the match, it's tough to adjust. Mm -hmm. you know, again, there's one person, there's a lot going on in your mind. You're not sure of this, there's so many different variables going on. So really the, the best thing to do is keep it simple with again, the young athlete, because their brain is not as developed as say a Roger Federer mm -hmm. and they can't always take that all that 
great information that mom or dad, or even the coach wants to give them on the run. And, uh, so in, in this case, definitely less is more. What's a game style. Can you give an example of, yeah, you got your aggressive baseline or someone like an Andre Agassi that's just ripping balls off the baseline. You got your net rushers, which is more of an old school game where when the, when the, excuse me, when the tennis balls and the courts were a little bit slow or faster, people would just go to the net and try to volley everything. A Stefan Edberg, Patrick Rafter, those guys. And then now you've got, uh, you know, your steady baseline or something, somebody like a, a Novak who just doesn't miss a ball. And he's very aggressive too. So he can, and a after a while, and most of these good players, they can play multiple game styles. So they'll depending kind of, on the opponent. right, they'll, they'll adapt to their surroundings. Um, an all court game is somebody that can use all their drop shot, kind of put all the games in one. And for me, I'm a, I'm a counter puncher. So, which is, you know, I wait for somebody to hit the ball big and then I kind of make my move later in the, in the point. Mm -hmm. But I like to serve big too. I like to volley. I like to hit drop shots. I like to slice. So I have a little bit of the quality of an all court player as well. It just, it depends if I'm playing someone with huge ground strokes and it's overpowering me. I've got to kind of be the guy waiting. And then if I play, let's say a, a novice person or someone with not a big game, or I play one of my kids at, at the club, I'm going to be the aggressor. So it really, it just kind of just depends on your surroundings, your settings, what, what court, whether on the clay court, the hard court and the juniors really don't play on grass all that much. So you really mostly play on hard and clay, but uh, again, a lot of different variables are going on in tennis. And that's why it's important to build that toolbox at a young age. So you can say, Hey, Take, take a little pace off with that slice or, hey, let's try to get that serve into the backhand. Something like that to change it up if you're uh, losing and if you're winning. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Keep doing what your original game plan. Is Do these game styles be, uh, does it get molded? Uh, let's say you, you start working with this athlete or this uh, person that wants to work with you in tennis. You say, okay, depending on the, like their tennis IQ and their athleticism, they're like, okay, there might be this game style. Or does that completely depend on the actual opponent? And then, well, you're, so your game style you're going to build for your student, right? Mm -hmm. So, if you're six foot two and two hundred pounds and super, you know, uh, strong and can just crush the ball from the baseline, maybe that guy's going to be an aggressive baseliner. If you've got a guy that's five ten or five nine and can run side to side like none other, and but doesn't really hit the ball super hard, but again, has good hands. That guy's probably going to be a, a, a steady baseliner, maybe a ball retriever, who mm -hmm. knows? So yes, definitely you're looking at the skill set of your player first to build a game style, but you'd like them to have all their shots down. So just in case they're playing X or Y or Z type of person, say, hey, today we're going to switch it up a little bit more than just go out there and just try to play your game. Maybe your opponent's better at that game. So you might have to, switch up the tactics a little bit in order to beat them. How much coaching does that actually goes on in a, in a tennis match? Let's say you're, you have the opportunity to be there. I mean, I know like in baseball, you go in, you come out, the coach is there, boom, boom, or you meet. Um, I know, uh, again, you ha usually have the coach there to talk a little bit more, but in tennis, how much of that goes on? And, and I know you mentioned cues and demand or commands. How much of that? In the junior level, uh, very little because, again, if you're at, let's say we're at the practice courts, I can coach, I can be on the court, I can do whatever I want. Uh, once they go to a tournament, very little because coaching is not allowed. So if they do split sets, there is that two, three-minute window that you can talk to them, but otherwise not really any besides maybe looking at the opponent beforehand and saying, 
hey, here's a scouting report on this opponent. As you get up to the much higher level uh, juniors or even up to the pro level, there's way more information available. There's stats. Um, the USTA will send out a report to the coaches for the Americans. Hey, this person's serving out wide 90% of the time when she's down 30, 40 or whatever it is. So you can, you know, it gets really technical at the level goes up and there's more information, but at the junior level, it's going to usually be everything beforehand. And then at the high junior level, you'll start to see some of the same faces. So you'll know some of like the top kids game styles or mm -hmm. someone you've seen before and you say, okay, we played this boy or girl X times last time they did this really well. That's why they beat you. And maybe we got to change this up this time. That is detail. Yes. Lots of details in tennis. Uh, I'm sure as other sports too, but again, tennis is one of those things where your opponent is doing everything they can to beat you. So on top of you having to play a good game, you got to keep it together if your opponent's playing well too. And a lot of the times I see uh, just um, my students or even kids that play at the club not respecting the opponent enough. And not necessarily that you have to be friends or best buddies with who you're playing. but or, just, even, or even scared. but Even scared, but just, just more of uh, respect for the level of play. So sometimes your opponent hits a really good shot and I hear right out of one of my students, oh, I'm so bad. I can't believe I hit that. You know, your opponent had a good point. Mm -hmm. Let it go. And once you can do that, you're going to stop putting so much pressure on yourself and getting so angry at yourself and you can just more focus on your game and you know, the ability to just say, no big deal, one point, next one. What are the, some of the techniques or I guess some of the drills that you uh, may have provided or you've seen that have worked to help uh, athletes train for pressure or train for that? Again, we mentioned that it's very hard to simulate that game-like, but... What are some of the things that you try to maybe uh, implement within your practice or in your uh, drills? To... Yeah, I would I would definitely say no no drill will really again simulate pressure. So a typical practice before uh, one of the kids plays a tournament will will warm up. Again, most of my uh, sessions are about for an hour. Every once in a while, someone will do a ninety minute session, but that's rare. Mm -hmm. So or most of the practices that the kids go to will be two to three hours. So what we'll do is let's say we'll probably spend 50% of that practice warming up, going through all our strokes, but then the other 50% is going to be competing or maybe even more depending on um, day before a match, week before a big tournament, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And we will spend a lot of time working on serving and returning. Those are the two biggest uh, shots in tennis. If you can't get the return in, you're going to lose. If you don't get your serving consistently, you're going to also probably be on the losing end. So definitely the serve and return when it's more towards uh, game time or tournament time. And again, you got to, you got to play points. So whether it's against me, whether it's against another kid, whether it's against four other kids, that's the only way to get ready. What are some of the issues that you typically see with, uh, I guess, athletes in general? That you see that you constantly have to either if either if it's a technique or their mindset um, or maybe even uh, interaction with parents or parents interacting with athletes. What are what? Are <laughs> very broad question there. Yeah. Very broad question. Um, again, expectations and reality. Um, that's number one. A lot of people have super high expectations and maybe are deaf or. Not definitely not, but uh, they're just not putting in the work, mm -hmm. and uh, 
just like in the real world, if you're not working hard, there's probably somebody else that is that that wants to take your job. So number one, under training before a tournament and then expecting to go out there and win it. And then also getting extremely mad at yourself. Um, time commitment, quality, quality of practice as well. Uh, quality over quantity. Some people practice 15 hours a week and some people practice five to 10. Sometimes the people practicing five to 10 are going to do way better, but because those guys or girls are getting out to practice 15 minutes early. They're going through their stretching with their bands. They got their little stretching routine that they're, whether they're physio or the guy or myself even made a little warm up for them. Mm-hmm. They're doing that before their four o'clock lesson. They're there at three forty-five. We have very few kids that do that uh, all across the board, but there are, there are those kids that do it and you see they're more focused. They're taking ownership of mm-hmm. their tenants. So uh, a lot of kids are quick to blame anything, whether it be the equipment, the racket, their coach, the shoot, the, the list goes on, uh, the, the waterfall of excuses. So for me, just got to go out there and play. It's okay. Losing's okay. That's part of it. But you want to be learning from your, your losses or, hey, I lost to Andy today, but he was, his forehand was incredible. Next time I play him, I got to keep it away from there. Hmm. So at least that they're learning or even just, taking an observation away from their win or loss. Because sometimes too, even when you win, maybe you win ugly. Uh, a famous title of a book from Brad Gilbert, who's a longtime player and coach. So he always said that he wasn't the most physically fit or the best forehand or whatnot, but he went out there and just did whatever it takes to win. So a lot of these kids are not ex- exhausting all their options to win. They're just quick to say, oh, I don't feel it today. I'm going to lose or this isn't going well for me today. So I'm really big on being able to lose the first set and come back and win or vice versa, win the first set, lose the second set, but then still be able to have that focus, go in the tiebreaker or the third set and just take it down. So another uh, Andy Roddick, another big name, he said he was only really feeling the ball 15 to 20% of the time that he's on a pro tour. Guy's a former Grand Slam champion, number one player in the world telling you, hey, he was only playing his best 20% of the time, if that. But again, he found a way to win. Mm-hmm. So he did a really good job, again, with mental toughness throughout his career. He said, I don't want to lose. I'll do whatever it takes to go out there and compete to the highest level, even if my technique or my game style today is not at the highest level. Quality losses well, is kind of what comes to mind. Right? You lose, but... You, you get so much feedback and so much uh, knowledge of yourself as a player and maybe even the opponent when you face them again that it becomes more – it's not just – not like you're racking up losses. Oh, coach says it's okay to lose. Here you go. But you really are really being tentful uh, or intentful. And uh, like I said, you're, you're really learning from those experiences to then not have them happen again. That's Correct. the idea. Correct. And there's going to be a lot of ups and downs along the way. And even the best of tennis players have those ups and downs and go through the list of all the guys and the girls of who's been good and bad and up and down at some point. But again, we go back to that percentage wise. So all the best players in the world are still only barely over 50%. And you get over that loss, that, that fear of, of losing, right? It becomes, oh, I'm going to, rather than oh, I'm scared to lose or I don't want to lose, it becomes, okay, if I lose it's because this and this and this, or if I did lose, I'm going to learn this, this, and this, and I'm going to be better the next time. I think that that takes the pressure off. One, I know for me as an athlete, if I know 
three out of ten uh, people are going to strike out and still be really good. I know that's going to, even though it was still very hard, but it gave me the opportunity to be like, okay, I'm just going to get my pitch and do the best I can with it. Same thing almost like in tennis. You're just going to do your best, um, stick to what your coaches and what you have learned with your coaches, and if you lose, uh, nitpick or, or figure out what was that, that caused the loss, whatever it was, and then right. run from it. And I have to throw a disclaimer in. I don't think that I had had that mindset when I was a <laughs> right. 15, 16, 17-year-old. It probably took me till I was about 25, 26, and I was playing recreational or you know men's open level. And it did take me many years and many mental conditioning sessions with my mom, who's a therapist, and my dad as well, mm -hmm. to tell me to chill out because I was so intense um, and I always tried really hard, but sometimes it would just lead me to raging on the court. And because I, I definitely hate losing more than I love winning. Right. So I was always ready to have a rematch, but sometimes I, I needed <laughs> one a, more, one more. Yeah. Sometimes I needed uh, about five to 10 deep breaths, <laughs> if not more before I stepped on the court. Cause I was just, you know, so obsessed with not losing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what about the, the person that doesn't want to compete at a very high level and just wants to play? What, what do you recommend to that? Uh, I mean, they're technically an athlete in a sense, but that recreational athlete that just likes to play in the weekends and, you know, just wants to get better day by day. What do you recommend to them? Go out there and hit some tennis balls, take a lesson, find a friend that that's a comparable level, even or girl or guy or play mixed doubles, uh, any, anything you want to do to have fun. Um, whatever whatever floats your boat whatever you like to do go out there and do it so as far as the recreational tennis player i coach uh i have a group of moms that i coach i have a group of guys that i coach i have a few guys i give private lessons to everyone's different um so some people don't have necessarily set out goals that's totally fine with me hey every friday eight o'clock i want to hit and i want to get a good workout in um totally fine with that uh, so as long as you're having a good time out there, I'm having a good time as well. And if at any time you don't want to be playing tennis anymore, you'd rather be working on a gym or you'd rather be playing matches or whatever it is, again, with, with your time and with your money and endless possibilities. So I always want people to feel like they have the freedom to do whatever they want in this you know nice world we live on. What's the best way for the listeners to contact you, Mr. Jeremy Sandford? Uh, definitely you could go email J E R S T A N D at gmail.com. You got Instagram at J Stando. Um, can definitely get my phone number from there. Or we actually even have a website, standofordtennis.com. S T A N D I F O R D tennis.com. And uh, that'll probably give you those that info that i just did as well and listeners don't you worry i will definitely put this at the bottom of the show notes and in the description so you can hit this man up for his knowledge and his experiences as a tennis coach um any books any book recommendations you would or any resources that you would recommend for either an athlete or a recreational or anybody trying to get into this tennis world uh winning ugly i love that one by brad gilbert so that's very tennis specific and then I really like the book called Growth Mindset. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's that can apply to tennis, any sport, and life. Uh, those are two. And anything by Les Standiford. Those aren't necessarily tennis-specific, but my father is an author. So I have to give him a little shout-out. What? What type of books does he 
uh, Last Train to Paradise by Henry Flagler is his biggest uh, nonfiction book that's been published. He's the uh, head of creative writing over at FIU. So okay. if you're looking for, for writing, you know, that's your one-stop shop. Oh, dang. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, this last part, uh, second to last. Uh, part of the podcast is what I call speed round. Okay. And speed round is I have some questions here prepared and some that I just uh, wrote down that I thought would be cool. Awesome. Um, you have literally 0.3 seconds okay. to answer these questions. So whatever comes Quick. first to the dome is what you yeah, say. Yeah. Um, 0.3 seconds is an arbitrary number, but um, answer as quickly as possible. Are you ready for uh, speed round, Mr. Jeremy Stanley? Yes. Are you sure? Seconds. Are you yes. nervous? No. There's a lot of pressure. We're just talking about pressure. Love pressure. Okay. All right. First question. Toilet paper over or under when you're putting on the thing? You know when you put toilet paper on the little roll? Okay. Is the is the paper over or is it coming from the bottom under? Funny you say that over, but that's because my wife changed me to <laughs> be like that. So it used to be under and then she said well, you're doing it wrong. So over. Always I don't now. I think that's relative to the to the person. I mean some people say if you hit it, you know, that way it doesn't roll all the way down, but I'm a very organized person in life, but again, happy wife, happy life. So over for now. I agree. Um, when you get in the car, what's the first thing you do? Buckle your seatbelt or turn on the radio? Reggaeton all day. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you can only eat one thing, what would it be in the world? Chicken tenders. Chicken tenders. Yes. Is there a specific uh, location or part I, I like many joanna's marketplace south miami definitely number one chick-fil-a close number two let me tell you chick-fil-a fries are uh, uh i literally have a problem when yeah. it comes to that not the best waffle not the best before a tennis match but definitely <laughs> after a, a solid weekend you should definitely you should go for them celebratory uh meal chick-fil-a chicken tenders uh yes or hillstone spinach dip uh, french dip and many other things. Sushi, <laughs> too. Yeah. Sushi. What's your favorite sushi? Uh, every Tuna, salmon, any mix of any of those. Is there shrimp, a partic- shrimp tempura. Is there a particular Miami spot you go to? This this is selfishly just for me. Mi- uh, Miyako is my place that I go to all the time. It's right, next to, it's right next to my uh, Miyako Dayland. It's right next to Royal Palm. So okay. I'm there at least once a week, probably twice. Miyako. All right. Are you ready for the next question? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah best dance move in your arsenal if you're on the dance floor and it's go time what what are you pulling out and uh yeah uh definitely the roll the dice move from what was the movie with seth rogan uh, uh pineapple express or no no not pineapple express knocked up knocked up knocked up <laughs> <laughs> you said point three seconds or less i I'm did, sure I did. Other ones, but I'm not roll the right dice now. okay second option Second option yeah, the, is the uh, fishing move where you pretend that you're I like that, that you're that you're reeling someone in. Yeah. Well that you bring somebody into the battle. Exactly. At that point. Exactly. You're, okay, bring in help. Last question. Favorite movie. Oh man. I gotta go rounders. Uh Matt Damon. Rounders. Edward Norton. Can't say I I'm a poker guy. Rounders. It's got competition in it. I like many other movies, but if I had to say one on top of my head, rounders is up there. Wow. Rounders. Okay. Well, this last part of the podcast is what I call thanks, and I give three thanks uh, that I think are super important. First one goes to you, Mr. Jeremy Stanford, uh, for your, one giving me the time to be on this podcast, for you know giving us the time for you to be on here, sharing some knowledge, sharing your journey as a tennis pro, going from uh, crunching numbers to, I guess, 
I don't feeding tennis, tennis balls. Feeding tennis balls. I was trying to figure out what a better way to say that, but feeding tennis balls it is, and, and enjoying every moment and impacting one our youth, you know, and, and really being able to have being. I mean, as a coach, you, you take a, a big responsibility. So, uh, uh, I thank you for what you do, and thank you for being on this podcast. Um, second, thank you goes to the listeners. Uh, you guys listening right now could have been doing anything at this moment. You could have been watching Netflix, watching Rounders. Um, trying to go to Miyako, you know, for sushi. You could have been anywhere at this point, but you decided to listen to Mr. Jeremy Stanford and myself uh, talk about tennis. And, uh, well, I learned about tennis. I wasn't talking about it. Um, so thank you very much uh, for giving us the opportunity for for giving us a platform to be able to share this knowledge and, and experiences and just share some value. So thank you very much. Third and final thank you goes to our clients, goes to our patients, goes to our students. Thank you for giving us the opportunity uh, to share our knowledge, to share our skills, to, to, to give the opportunity to, or should I say, thank you for cherish, cherishing, cherishing our value and what we have to offer. Because again, if there was nobody to teach, nobody to work with, um, it's just wasted opportunity, I guess. So uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for giving us um, a job that we love to do. So thank you very much. With that being said, this is Connect and Move Radio. I'm your host, Andy Fortuna, signing out. Hey there, Andy Fortuna here, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. I love the opportunity to connect and share information with passionate people just like you, and would love the opportunity to do the same for others. So please take the time right now to leave a five-star review and help spread the word about this podcast. Thank you so much for your support, and see you on the next episode. Hold up.